the amount of time that they can actually spend with a patient, they don't really have time to dig into it. So it's much easier to say like, oh, you're fine. I'm sure it's nothing. Take some painkillers, wait it out, you know, be on your way. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode 107 of That's So Maven. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor. And you guys know I love this sponsor. It's Imperfect Produce. They are an absolutely incredible brand that's helping to reduce food waste and bringing you groceries at 30 to 50% less than you would typically see in a grocery store. So they started with produce, but they've now expanded to include other non-perishables like lentils and rice and olive oil and all that good stuff, which otherwise would have gone to waste. So they're working with farmers who sometimes have grains where they were initially working with a distributor, but then the distributor changed how much they want. And suddenly they're left with all of this extra grains or lentils or whatever that might be. And so Imperfect Produce is coming in and purchasing that and offering it to you guys at a discounted price. So otherwise, totally would have gone to waste, but it is still healthy, still great for you. Sometimes there are certain imperfections, but they're still delicious and there's nothing wrong with them at all. I get a box every single week. Seriously, I really do get one every single week. I get the medium organic box and I generally get lots of produce and then I also order certain staples for our house like olive oil, like short grain brown rice, like lentils, stuff like that that I like to keep in the house. So I'm obsessed with Imperfect Produce. There's no other way to put it. By now, you're probably sick of hearing me talk about them because I love them so much. So if you're interested in trying out Imperfect Produce for yourself, you can just head to imperfectproduce.com slash healthymaven or use the code healthymaven at checkout. And they are available in a lot more cities now. They're not everywhere yet, so you'll have to double check to see if they are available in your city. But I know they've expanded to a point where I wouldn't be able to list all of the cities here. So definitely look into that and see if they're available in your neighborhood. And I know they're working to expand to other places. So join their mailing list because they let you know once new cities have been added to their roster. So I always like to follow along. I know they're in Texas now, which is awesome. A couple different cities in Texas. So definitely check that out. But let's talk about today's episode. And I know I shared last week that I was going to be sharing a little bit more about my own health journey and stuff that has been going on with me. And it was funny because while I was sorting all of this out, I got connected to our guest today, whose name is Adrienne Nolan-Smith, and she is a certified patient advocate. And she's going to be sharing a little bit more about what that's about. But funny enough, when we got connected, I was sharing with her you know, some of my health struggles. And for me, it's been a lot of just fatigue and some weird head rushes that I've been dealing with, where I've always had really low blood pressure, so that's kind of normal, but it has started to get worse and then got to a point where I was fainting, and I fainted a couple times, and it was starting to get a little bit scary, and so I approached my doctor about it to try and figure out what was going on, and we did some blood work, and nothing was really coming up, and you know when you have that gut feeling like something is off, like this shouldn't be happening? And I know I'm not alone in this feeling that a lot of people have this where they just know something is wrong, but it requires some digging and you're not necessarily feeling like your doctor is on your side and willing to do that digging with you. You know, there's sort of this feeling like it's in your head, it's not so bad. And since it's not so bad, you know, we're not going to figure out what's going on. And This is something that happens to a lot of people, women especially, is being told that their symptoms are in their head and aren't worth researching. And I'm really lucky that in the end, it ended up being something that wasn't too big of a deal and was pretty easy to solve. But it required three different blood tests to figure out that I'm deficient in B12, which is something that is so simple to supplement. But I was never tested for it because I eat animal products and B12 is available in animal products. And so if you eat them, you usually have a pretty good level of B12. That being said, mine was very severely deficient and absolutely was causing my fatigue. And since I've started supplementing, I've been way less tired and have also found that my head rushes have been way better. They still happen from time to time. I really just need to be careful about when I'm getting up to make sure I'm doing it slowly. But since supplementing with B12, they happen less and less and I haven't fainted. So it was something so simple and I'm incredibly lucky that it was something so simple. 
And yet there are so many people who struggle with things that are far worse and don't feel like they have a doctor or a healthcare professional who is on their side and willing to put in the work to figure out what is going on. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is how to make the most of the healthcare system and be your own advocate. Now, something I do want to say before we get into this episode is that I think it's important that we have this conversation, but I also don't want to demonize doctors or Western healthcare. We are so, so lucky to have this, and we are so lucky that we have people who truly care about the well-being of their patients. There are so many incredible doctors out there and PAs and nurse practitioners and people who genuinely do care so, so much about their patients. I've had some not so pleasant experiences, but that doesn't mean that all doctors are terrible and that the medical system is useless. It's not, but it's important for us to have these conversations about where it has failed us and where we can step into our own power to make the most of the resources that we do have and hopefully advocate for change. So again, I don't want to say that all doctors are bad. I don't want this to come off as demonizing the healthcare system. We're incredibly lucky to have it and... Yeah, with that, let's just jump into today's episode. Here's Adrian. Hi, Adrian. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. I'm so excited to chat with you today to learn more about your journey, to talk about what it means to be a patient care advocate, and just talk about some things with the healthcare system that I feel like we don't talk about a lot. I mean, I feel like we talk about it in the sense that we'll complain about certain things, but understanding what it's kind of inherently wrong with the system and some ways to navigate it a little bit better. It's a much more productive conversation to have. So I feel like that's something that we all need to increase the dialogue around. Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, of course, I sort of found out about the issues with the healthcare system in a more granular way and sort of ways to navigate it to serve you when you need it in, you know, not the best circumstances, but I think like anything positive, it always comes from a problem that you had or an issue that you experienced that you felt like, well, this isn't right. I want to dig into this and actually then help others so they can avoid the issues that I had. Exactly. It's always from our own challenges and obstacles that we learn the most and that we're able to offer the most to other people. So on that note, why don't we chat a little bit about your experiences and you know what your journey has looked like? Sure. So do you want me to start way back? Uh, yeah, let's go way one. back. Okay. So everything that kind of led me to what I'm doing today started around when I was 11 years old. So over two decades ago. And it started with getting diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease. So I grew up in the Northeast. I'm from New York City, but spent some time in the summers in Lyme, Connecticut, as it turns out, which is actually where Lyme disease comes from. And I was experiencing extreme fatigue and um, short-term memory loss when I was about 11 years old. And my younger brother was very sick with neurological issues and a lot of joint pain. And so, you know, of course, they tried to say that he had learning disabilities and these other things. But my mom was really adamant that there was something wrong with this child and finally got a diagnosis of Lyme for him. But they believe he'd had it for a long time, which is sort of the definition of chronic Lyme disease when, you know, perhaps you've had it for too long for antibiotics to actually work. So they looked at me and sort of thought, well, what's wrong with this one? Because, you know, she doesn't really have joint pain, but she does have this, you know, memory issues and this fatigue. So let's test her. And sure enough, I had it as well. So it kind of, you know, upended a pretty normal childhood at that point, And we started doing a lot of different treatments. We did try conventional antibiotics, but they didn't work after we went through the first round. And um, my mom, again, she was a really ferocious researcher and she just knew that trying them over and over and over wasn't the answer. So she kind of left the conventional healthcare system at that point and went on a journey to figure out how to heal us with other modalities. And so I did so many weird ones. I can get into it if you want at some point, but basically after two years of different therapies, I was actually testing, you know, negative for Lyme or my Lyme was in remission. So that kind of started my journey with wellness and integrative medicine, both myself and my family. And we began to eat very differently and saw a lot of different kinds of integrative practitioners ongoing because it had helped us to begin with. So we sort of thought, okay, well, this is a better approach maybe. So 
that was my introduction. I had pretty good health from about 13 to 18. And then I'd say my second, I say I sort of have three major health experiences that have led me to where I am today. And my second of which began when I was about six months into college. I went away to college in Baltimore to Johns Hopkins. And when I had been there about six months, I lost my period, which is the technical word for that is amenorrhea. And, you know, I got kind of worried because it'd been pretty normal since age 12. And uh, I decided to start seeing some endocrinologists and gynecologists at Hopkins and also back in New York where I'm from probably about six or eight months uh, after I'd lost it. And, you know, they all did blood work. They all said, you know, we don't find anything wrong with you actually. So why don't you just take the birth control pill and you can, you know, get it that way. And just gave me the script and sent me out. And I'd become enough of an empowered patient kind of watching my mom and the Lyme experience to know that this was actually not a solution. It was a band-aid to a symptom. And so I said, you know, respectfully, that's not really going to get me better. That's not going to heal the problem. I want to know what's wrong with me. Like not getting my period is a symptom. It's a sign. It's a cry for help. And I want to heal whatever it is. I don't want it to just mask it, get a fake period and then, you know, never know what's going on. And perhaps the problem gets much worse, you know, over several years. So they, you know, they all kind of looked at me like I was insane, but off I went. And finally, after many of these appointments, my father found me a naturopath back in New York and I started seeing her and she went through my blood work on our first appointment so differently, you know, took over an hour. And she basically said, look, there's a lot of things that have gone on. You lived in China and definitely got a parasite and, you know, abused Cipro, which is a powerful antibiotic at that time because you always had China gut and these other things. You also... um began eating a pretty terrible diet after 17 years of eating a pretty healthy one in your home, especially after I had Lyme. My family, you know, we didn't call it gluten-free back then. We called it like wheat-free. So, you know, we didn't eat that. We didn't eat conventional dairy. If we had any dairy, it was, you know, goat milk or um, rice stream, things like that. And we couldn't have any sugar. We ate things like carob chip cookies, which is you know, I don't think anybody knows what carob chip is. <laughs> anyway, it's kind of like chocolate, but not as sugary. And so, you know, of course, nobody wanted to play at our house, but <laughs> we ate pretty well and took a lot of supplements. And of course, I got to college, started eating in the dining hall three meals a day and didn't take any supplements. So, you know, the change in diet was certainly uh, an issue and the parasites. And then also, you know, abusing the antibiotics, so kind of ruining my gut. And then I would say the micronutrient deficiencies and kind of also having a low thyroid thyroid that I got from my mom and my dad had one as well. And so it's just a perfect storm of problems, right? Where your your gut health and your thyroid, they all impact your hormones. And so when you're not getting your period, it's usually a hormonal imbalance, right? You're not producing enough estrogen or not testosterone or some other combination. And so we started working on my diet right away. She introduced me to Chinese herbs and uh, Actually, I'd been introduced to those during my Lyme experience, but really hadn't revisited them from age 13 to 18. And, you know, looked at the micronutrient deficiencies, gave me some supplements, things like that. I did occasional acupuncture as well. And lo and behold, six months later, she said, you know, do this for six months. Six months and a day later, I came back and it's been, you know, normal coming every 28 to 32 days for 13 years. And it was by second major aha moment of kind of like, wow, this system is very broken. Like I've gone to some of the best, quote unquote, best doctors in the country with the Ivy League degrees on their wall. And, you know, they're not even spending 10 minutes with me to tell me that I need a pill and not listening to me really when I'm saying that I don't want one. And what do you have for me? You know, otherwise, and their answer is pretty much nothing. And it was this woman who you know, looks pretty weird, right? She's got a ponytail down to her butt. She's, she has like incense in her office and, <laughs> you know, she's, she's actually very knowledgeable and spoke intelligently, but she doesn't seem like the white coat doctors, right? And here I was, she was really taking the time to dig and to figure out and do the hard work with me of what's really going on. And these other people didn't. And it changed a lot about how I thought, of healthcare in general, but also the people that are there to help you and the system. Like, what's wrong with the system that all these people can't take the time or don't want to take the time 
and this woman does. So that was experience number two. And then the most impactful thing that happened to me that led me to where I am today happened about a year after I got my period back. Just when I graduated from college that summer, my mother had a massive manic episode and we had to institutionalize her in the middle of the night, send her to a sort of a city mental health care facility, so more or less a jail, because she was so paranoid and delusional that she thought, you know, my brothers and I were trying to hurt her, trying to kill her. And we had to chase her through the New York City subway system to try to restrain her. And we didn't know what else to do. So we just called the police. And, um, you know, she went away and we didn't really know where she was going. And it was, it just launched this horrendous episode that lasted about three and a half years of my life in which she was in different mental health care facilities all up and down the East Coast, so many drugs and such powerful drugs, you know, antipsychotics, antidepressants, mood stabilizers that she just had, you know, dozens of side effects because each one of these has a handful of side effects. And then, you know, those side effects lead to other drugs and those have side effects. And it just, it's like a domino effect until you are so out of sorts that you're not really functioning or living, right? So she was drooling, shaking, could hardly speak normally, had trouble sleeping, weight issues. I mean, it was just, it was just endless. And so though she was able to stabilize her, so she wasn't manic, she was kind of a vegetable and she wasn't exactly living either. So we knew, you know, my uncle became her legal guardian because my parents had divorced and I kind of took over on the kid side. So I was, you know, helping oversee her care for me and my brothers and just realizing that there was kind of like no way out. I didn't really have any experience with the mental health care system before this, or I didn't have any actually. And so I didn't really understand like once you're in it, the doctors, the drugs, the insurance companies, the facilities, like they sort of have you and it's very hard to get away from it. And also we were scared, you know, we didn't want her to have more manic episodes because we didn't know what would happen next. And so finally, after about three and a half years of this, when I was 25, a few days before Christmas, she took her life. And it was coincidentally right when I was applying to business school. So I was applying and uh, my applications were due two weeks later. And it just changed, changed everything. It was the most traumatic thing I've ever experienced. And it just kind of, you know, one, I didn't think I was going to actually get to business school because I didn't think I could finish the applications. And my best friends kind of banded together and said, no, you're very close. Like, let's just finish these drafts, like get them out the door. And they were tremendous. And then uh, also because, you know, I was working at IBM, I knew I wanted to do something different, but I wasn't exactly sure what this history of health and wellness and integrative medicine had been in my life. But certainly, you know, I never thought I would work in this capacity. I just, it was just something that I knew a lot about because of my experiences and the person that, you know, my friends went to, if they ever had questions about this kind of thing or, um, you know, certainly made fun of for the way that I ate and all my vitamins and this and that. But again, not thinking it would be something that I worked in. And I decided if I got into business school that I would go and use it as an opportunity to change my career path and work on fixing the healthcare system and helping others to prevent and reverse these chronic health issues and diseases naturally and actually get to the root cause and allow the body to heal instead of, you know, what I'd experienced with my mom's situation. So, yeah, so I went, I went to Northwestern in Chicago. I moved six months later to Chicago from New York. I didn't know a soul there, basically. Actually, I had one friend of a friend. He he was in my class, and that was it. And uh, talked to anybody who would talk to me about integrative medicine and wellness. But this was basically before Instagram, right? This was like 2011. I think it was just starting. In no way did we expect it to become what it was today as far as this platform, this conversation around wellness and integrative medicine. And, you know, in Chicago, especially, there really wasn't much of a wellness scene. And so nobody really understood what I was trying to do or what I was talking about. So I kind of got pushed into this digital health world. And when I graduated, I decided to work within the conventional healthcare system. And I ended up working with hospitals for three years. So I was in a hospital every week for three years. And I was working with clients trying to help them to use technology to 
prevent people from coming back to the hospital for these different chronic diseases. And ironically, most of the chronic diseases now are all diet and lifestyle driven. So I was very frustrated because I knew what the answers were as far as what would it really take to get people to stop coming back to the hospital for heart disease and diabetes and you know, asthma and COPD and all these big diseases, yet I couldn't do any of them, right? All the hospitals really wanted to do was go fill your prescription, get a follow-up appointment, go fill your prescription, get a follow-up appointment. Or I should say prescriptions because, you know, the most people are on like six prescriptions when they get out of the hospital, if not more. So finally, after about three years, I said, you know, enough is enough. I could see what was happening on Instagram that people were finally able and ready to talk about the stuff that I'd known about my whole life and been an advocate for. And uh, I quit and I started working to film stories of health recovery through integrative medicine because I thought that proof was the most powerful thing that I could give people, that it was possible. And talked to some of the experts that had always been heroes of mine who sat between this healthcare world and the wellness world to show that functional integrative medicine was possible and, you know, sort of questions that people had about them to have them answered and started bringing research into the conversation. So I started doing research wrap-ups and showing that there's plenty of science and research around integrative medicine and wellness because I was really sick of hearing that there wasn't because <laughs> I, you know, I'm a research junkie. I go into PubMed, I I see it all and I'm always shaking my head thinking like why don't people understand that it is here. We have the answers. It's just about making it possible and accessible for people to actually live this way. So that's what I started doing. And I launched Wellbe, which is this, you know, media lifestyle and education company that I founded on uh, July 12th, 2017. So almost two years ago with a weekly newsletter website, all the different social channels. And um, then a year later, actually founded the Wellbe podcast. So I also have one. And it's just been a crazy ride since then for the last uh, two years just trying my hardest to bring this awareness and education to people in whichever, you know, medium they want to hear it. So that's my story. Well, I think the thing that we most connected on or that drew me to you was that you are kind of connecting these two worlds that feel totally separate at times. My background is in research, too. I worked in hospitals before I started The Healthy Maven. And I look at things pretty critically, like I look at it through the lens of scientific research. And it feels like there's this world that's very medical and very much rooted in science. And then you have the wellness and integrative medicine world that people think is driven by, you know, pictures on Instagram and isn't rooted in any research at all. And what you're doing is you're connecting these two worlds that can feel completely opposite at times. Yes, 100%. I believe and I think you believe too. And that's why we originally connected that until the wellness world and the healthcare system actually run into each other, (laughs) we're never going to solve the chronic disease crisis because you really can't do it unless people understand that wellness is just a foundation for how you live your life, right? Like before, you know, 100, 150 years ago, And a lot of the ancient traditions, which are now coming very much into the mainstream of traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, and some of these others, that was just part of every single day, right? You didn't have days where you didn't do some form of mindfulness meditation or Tai Chi or use Chinese herbs if you felt, you know, some sort of a sickness coming on or just as a preventative healing technique, you ate medicinally, right? Everything had a purpose. You weren't just shoving empty calories into your mouth. You were really thinking about how these different plant-based medicines for the most part were used for preventing health issues or for healing them. And you moved constantly because you had to. And now somehow all of that is gone by the wayside. And, um, the healthcare system really doesn't address those issues for the most part, except, you know, don't smoke and get routine exercise is pretty much what you hear. And so, yeah, I I believe that's the answer to everything is these two systems coming together and showing that, you know, the powerful good parts of the healthcare system, like the ability to, you know, conduct clinical trials and have research and science. Yes, we still need that, but that can also be a part of wellness. And then of course, the parts of wellness that you and I know and love can then make their way into how healthcare is delivered. 
Absolutely. So something that you talk a lot about is the disease care system and kind of how our medical system, especially here in North America, is built. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Like, what is a disease care system? Sure. So um, a disease care system is essentially a healthcare system that's built upon treating you only when you have a disease or only when you get sick. So it's think about it like somebody that just kind of mindlessly goes through life, eats whatever is, you know, in front of them, whatever they feel like, doesn't really think too much about the fact that they don't sleep a lot, you know, drinks at night, wakes up feeling groggy and crappy, then just gets a lot of coffee, has symptoms here and there, but just squashes them with over-the-counter stuff like antihistamines or uh, suppressant stuff, Advil, this, that, and the other, and then doesn't really move that much, whatever, doesn't check in with themselves, doesn't feel fully present, aware in their own bodies, and then bam, is diagnosed with some kind of a chronic disease, whether it's an autoimmune condition, heart disease, whatever it might be. And then finally, the healthcare system intervenes. So they might have even had some annual checkups throughout that time, but each time that the patient said, oh, well, it's true, I do have this kind of like chronic pain or I get these sinus infections a lot or UTIs, whatever. And it's like, okay, well, here's antibiotics. Here's this immunosuppressant. Just suppress, suppress, suppress. And so the underlying root cause of it continues to grow, whatever that issue is. And the diet and lifestyle continues to plague this poor body until it breaks, right? And then the diagnosis comes. And so that's really what a disease care system was versus a healthcare system, as you can imagine, is somebody that's really in tune with everything that's going on and addressing the why and the underlying cause of any kind of symptom they might be experiencing, but also living every day in a way that really encourages health, right? That routinely moves, that approaches sleep very seriously, that eats in a medicinal way, that uses natural solutions when they feel certain ailments coming on and doesn't suppress those symptoms, just lets them kind of heal. So that's the very different approach to it. And like a a true healthcare system would really dig to understand that person's lifestyle and also all the things that could be going wrong with them and really work with the patient to address the why and make sure they actually get rid of that and not suppress it with surgery or pharmaceuticals. So something that comes up for me is where things have gone wrong in our medical system that we're at a point where we're now strictly treating symptoms rather than understanding root causes. And, you know, part of it feels like there just isn't enough time. Like when I go see the doctor, I feel like I'm rushed in and out. I don't feel like I have an opportunity to really sit with my doctor and explain like, these are some of my lifestyle habits. And, you know, how might that be correlated with certain things in my life that maybe are not at their ideal? Or then there's money and, you know, not feeling like you have the funds to be able to get the kind of care that you need. So those are two things that kind of come to mind. But I'm curious, you know, why have we built this disease care system? Like, why are we focused so much on symptom reduction rather than root causes? Yeah. So I think that most people I talk to have your experience. (laughs) They're so frustrated by feeling rushed, not being heard, and also not feeling like the great kinds of care, right? The functional medicine doctors and practitioners and these therapists, et cetera, they're all out of pocket. So it's so inaccessible for anybody that doesn't have, you know, a lot of money to spend on that. So it's very frustrating because it's like even the people that know that they want to do things differently don't feel like they can afford it. And then, of course, there's the majority of people that don't even know they should be doing things differently, but just feel that the healthcare system isn't that great and, oh, well, just deal with it. So why has it evolved the way that it has evolved? So it's so complicated. I could write like six books on this topic because it's so, it's kind of like the Vietnam War, okay? It's a very ridiculous analogy. But when you look at the root causes of how it became such a mess, there's like seven different problems happening with the French who were there and like the American political system and then the Vietnamese and then the communist movement happening in China and Russia and like There's just a confluence of terrible events that all kind of played out in this saga. And so the same thing, I think, can be said for the American healthcare system. Like this very benign thing happened right after World War II where they made employers offer health insurance. As that evolved, it became very lucrative and it was no longer like a nonprofit charitable thing that was run out of churches. 
was, right? It was all of a sudden a business to be in. So that started to take off. And then people started to not just think of insurance for emergencies and accidents, but rather for everything. So then, you know, that's what you would use for an annual checkup and for this and for that. And instead of, I believe insurance should be more like car insurance, where you know, you really only use it for massive emergencies and the things that like a service or a checkup or any other kind of thing you do for your health is, you know, out of a health savings account or, or out of pocket because that way you're really empowered and you're really the consumer of that healthcare and you can make better decisions. But if it's all paid for by a third party, then your power is kind of taken away because you don't know what things cost. You don't know if you should be getting them, whether or not you need certain tests or which tests to get. You're kind of like, uh, yeah, like you really don't know what to ask for, what you should be having. It just kind of feels like it's all out of your hands. And it's because it's not a perfect economy. If you think about economics as part of my major in college, so I can nerd at it on a little bit, but basic supply and demand model is like, I have money, right? And I decide I want to buy coffee. And uh, I see that this place has terrific coffee, but it's just a little bit out of my price range. So I go to a place that has also pretty good coffee, but it's the price range that I want. And this very expensive place realizes, oh, shoot, like maybe we're a little overpriced. Let's get that to the right price. Or that place is so terrific and organic and non-toxic coffee and all this stuff. And they have my favorite, you know, organic oat milk, et cetera, that everybody pays for their prices. And so everybody else responds and says, you know, what are they doing? Right. Let's be like them. So that works really well because then you're in control and you're empowered and you can use your dollar. The healthcare system has too many parties involved. So the pharmaceutical industry, the insurance industry, the actual patients, all the providers, the healthcare systems themselves. So it's kind of a mess. And so you can't really be empowered if you don't know where you're going or who's the buyer and who's the seller. <laughs> and also because when you access that healthcare, you get an x-ray, you whatever it is, you only find out what it costs after the fact and you can't give it back, right? You can't get a refund on the x-ray. It's it's already done. So in that case, it's very unempowering because it's not transparent. You can't say like, that's ridiculous. I'm not paying for that. So you move on to the next place. It's all kind of happening behind the scenes. So it's a very complicated, long-winded explanation of how it got to be this kind of a sick care system. But one more thing I'll add is that when antibiotics developed, right? It was such a miracle because a lot of times, you know, people died for the most part before that because of infections. And so I think what happened was people became so enamored with the idea that you could save lives via this kind of a prescription drug that they just kind of wanted to use prescription drugs for everything. So it became like kind of a love affair with that. And rather than realizing, whoa, this is really powerful, we should use it sparingly on just when we need it, just emergencies. We started to use it, you know, in animal feed for every little thing. We developed all of these other drugs and we got, I think, a little bit carried away. And now we're finally seeing with the antibiotic resistance crisis and all these other issues we're having that we went a little too far and that it really should only be used sparingly in emergencies, but for everything else, we need to look at the root cause and we need to use natural ways of healing those root causes. Absolutely. So something that I want to talk about is you're actually a board certified patient advocate. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about what that means and why you decided to pursue this. Sure. So it's a very new board certification. I was one of the first people to um, actually sit for the board exam, but I decided to do so because I heard about it and I knew that in my life I'd been asked a lot for help with, you know, navigation and advocacy around who to see, what to do, which treatments to try. And it was something that I really wish I had had going through well, I think my mom wishes that she had it for us when we were going through Lyme because it was such a, you know, crapshoot for the lack of a better term, who was actually going to be able to help us. And we, you know, we hit a lot of practitioners who didn't before we hit the ones who did. And then, of course, with my amenorrhea thing, I wish somebody could have navigated me to somebody interested in the kind of medicine I was interested in. So I didn't have to go to seven doctors who, you know, wasn't. And certainly, most of all, with my mom's care, you know, I was Googling all kinds of things to try to find somebody who would address this issue differently and I just couldn't get to them. And so had I had someone working on my behalf to really look into other kinds of treatments or the different, you know, call around and find functional integrative psychiatrists who would have approached her case differently, like a Kelly Brogan or Ellen Vora, like I believe be alive today. So I knew this was something really important for me. And I also knew that 
in order to sit for this exam, you had to know a lot about the conventional healthcare system, which I had learned about for three years working within it. And so I kind of wanted to use that information that I had gathered to actually, you know, get this certification before it was all kind of gone, because <laughs> it was a lot about, you know, Medicaid billing and like all these disease codes for insurance and, you know, a lot of things that are related to navigating conventional healthcare. And so I thought, well, I know a lot about it. I'll take this exam and then I'll use it in the way that I want to use it, which is really more to navigate people to this functional integrative medicine world and these root cause type providers and practitioners. So that's what that is. And I think that it's now been around for about two years and there's a couple hundred of us, but it's certainly a new world and I'm sorry, a new role. And I find it very sad that it's needed at all, right? Because you'd love to have a system that you could, as a patient, navigate yourself. But it's also just a sad reality that that's not really the case. And so now there's this growing group of people there to kind of support not only patients, but their caretakers who feel really overwhelmed and might have full-time jobs and are like going to all these appointments, doing endless research, like I don't have time. And so the idea is to, you know, those patients and those caregivers to get to the right people who can really heal them. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I want to get into more of this conversation and ways that we can empower listeners so that they can be more of an advocate for themselves within the healthcare system. But something I wanted to highlight, and even something that I've experienced myself is gaslighting, especially with women in the healthcare system. I feel like when I go into the doctor that I am not necessarily being heard. And I don't know if it's because I'm a woman. Sometimes it happens with female doctors as well. But I think especially when it comes to female hormones and things that are pertinent mainly to women. I mean, even in your own experience with amenorrhea, basically being told, here's the birth control pill. This will fix all your problems. I think this is something that happens more often than most of us realize is that the birth control pill or you know some kind of pill is just offered as a way to basically mask any of the symptoms and not actually deal with what might really be going on. So I'm curious, like, what's this all about? <laughs> what's going on here? Why is this happening? Yeah, no, this is something I feel so strongly about. And I think the origins of gaslighting come from the fact that we have a paternalistic healthcare system, right? There were only male doctors for a really long time. And now there are increasing numbers of female doctors, which is excellent. But the system and the medical education is still kind of set up in a bit of a paternalistic way, which is that patients don't know anything. They want to Google some random blog and find something and tell you about it. But really, you have all the answers as the doctor and you need to direct this care and it's not a dialogue, right? And so there's, I think, what you hear, especially with some of these medical device cases like the surgical mesh, the the mesh that they were putting in women's abdomens where they pulled it from the market. It was FDA approved and they finally pulled it after enough complaints. But there was a great article in The Atlantic written about gaslighting and they were talking about this medical device situation where all of these women were coming in to their doctors, many of whom were male, saying, I'm in a lot of pain. I think, you know, it all kind of started when I had this mesh thing and planted and I think it might be that and I think I should get it removed and the doctors are saying like oh you're fine it's in your head I'm sure it's not that it's something else just take some Advil whatever wait it out it's very dismissive like women are always you know they're weaker so they have more pain they're emotional and so even female doctors kind of take on this paternalistic like oh gosh these patients they're you know they're just always complaining it's in their head like let's not really dig into this further. And frankly, they don't really have the time to dig into it. As you mentioned, like, I think it's an average of six or seven minutes per patient is what they're really allowed to spend with the patient because of the way the fee-for-service system works. They've got to continue seeing more patients or they don't get paid. So the confluence of those events, as we talked about, like the paternalistic medical education culture, the lack of female doctors for a very long time, and still a major disparity and there's not exactly like a balanced number of, of male and female doctors, coupled with the amount of time that they can actually spend with a patient, they don't really have time to dig into it. So it's much easier to say like, 
oh, you're fine. I'm sure it's nothing. Take some painkillers, wait it out, you know, be on your way. And so that's certainly what I experienced with, oh, just take the birth control pill. Like that's a lot easier and faster for them as a doctor to do than to really roll their sleeves up and ask me a million questions and run all these very different kinds of tests to see what else might be going on. Um, And not only that, but to then work on my diet and all these other lifestyle changes and other kinds of healing modalities, which is a ton of work for them, (laughs) much more work than, you know, a prescription. So I think all of those factors came together and created this gaslighting issue that we have certainly in the American medical system. Definitely. And I mean, I'm going to share a little story because I think it kind of highlights, you know, it's not specifically regarding like women's issues, but I have a female doctor and, you know, I was dealing with some weird health issues where I was getting very lightheaded and I wasn't feeling well rested despite sleeping a lot. And so I contacted my doctor and she suggested we run some blood work, which was great. We ran blood work and she ran blood work based on what she felt needed to be tested. Now, she didn't test B12 or iron because I eat meat and she felt, you know, I eat animal products. There shouldn't be any kind of deficiency there. And that was not something I realized when she initially ran the test. Now, I look at the results and I'm like, Everything looks normal here, but I just know, like, I just know something is wrong here and I feel like we can get down to the bottom of something. And yet I don't want to, you know, overstep my boundaries. I don't want to seem annoying. You know, all of these feelings that I'm sure I'm not alone in when it comes to seeing doctors is feeling like you're wasting their time. And so lo and behold, we ended up having to run three different series of blood tests. And finally, on the last one, I was like, why don't you run B12 and iron? Like, I know that I eat meat. I know that, you know, in theory, I shouldn't be deficient in these. But let's see what's going on here. And that's exactly what happened. I was severely deficient in B12, despite eating animal products. And I think it's one of those things where if you don't advocate for yourself, you probably won't get the answers that you need. And It's required me to kind of step outside my comfort zone and advocate and ask for what I want, even though I feel like I'm being annoying. (laughs) I'm sure I'm not alone in this feeling. So I'm wondering, you know, what's your best advice for anyone who might be struggling with something, whether it be something that they already have a diagnosis for or something that might just be a bunch of different symptoms, but they just have that gut feeling that something is up. How do you navigate the system to be your own best advocate? Absolutely. Wow. I'm so glad you shared that story. I know you shared that with me briefly when we first connected, but I'm so glad that you told it because it's such a great example of a few things. One, you've got to research. I mean, you know how many doctors roll their eyes and are like, oh, everyone's a Googler. Like everyone knows what they have and they come in and da da da. Like don't confuse all your Google searches with my, you know, 12 years or whatever of medical education and fellowship and working and this and that. But the truth of the matter is you've got to do your own research because there's, I think, 30,000 new articles a year, I'm sorry, research studies published in PubMed. And I think like tens of millions exist in there now. And the way that, as we mentioned, the the system is set up with fee-for-service, doctors have to really be seeing patients almost all of the time in order to make the finances work, right? So when are they able to go in and think differently, think critically, you know, get creative about what the issues might be, learn about new kinds of treatments or issues that people are having? They really don't have the time. So you've got to come in and be empowered to know a few things about the symptoms you've been having and then also different reasons that those things might be occurring. And don't just come in and say, like, I've got, you know, <laughs> I've got a pain in my abdomen. I must have summer cancer. Like, it can be a number of different things and realistic things, hopefully. But if you hadn't known about B12 or iron, how would you have even known to ask for that, right? Like you had to have done some research and some education before that to have even asked for that. So I think the first step is always education, always awareness and education. Got to get informed yourself to be empowered. And so I think that's the first thing I would say. And then, of course, you also want to be critical about the sources, right? Because doctors are very They only respect certain kinds of sources. So if you can bring in a combination, at least, um, even if you read about something on a blog, go and look into where that original source was, you know, if it came from the Washington Post or from Medscape or something like that, just so that you can also back up like 
different sources and that you dug into it a bit. And then I would say you've got to feel confident that you can speak up, like take their eye roll and shove it (laughs) wherever you need it to go. You know, like do not be intimidated. Do not feel that you are being a pain. Do not feel that you are wasting their time. Like it is your health and it is more important than anything else. If you don't have it, you don't have anything else, no matter what you're doing. So another couple of minutes for them to add something to a test that you want to check out or talk a little bit more about, you know, something that you think might be connected to your set of symptoms, you've got to do it. I mean, you have no choice. And if the doctor tries to shoo you out, you're not with the right doctor. (laughs) You need to go find somebody who wants to take the time to hear what you've got to say and to dig in and ask all of the relevant or seemingly irrelevant questions that might be able to inform them and connect the dots and make that, you know, aha moment that it really is worth testing your B12 and your iron because you never know what uh, what things can be. So I think that what you did is a perfect example of an empowered patient. And we just need people to feel that they can do that research and speak up and uh, and advocate for themselves in that way. Yeah. And it's definitely been a process for me to just own that it's okay for me to challenge my doctor, that I'm not being annoying, that I'm not trying to make her job more difficult. I'm simply looking out for my own best interest, which I need to be doing. And I think that many patients and many people feel this way. And I'd love to hear from your perspective, like what are the best ways that you can make the most of a doctor's appointment? And I know that's kind of a general question, but not everyone has an opportunity to sit down with a functional medicine doctor or someone who focuses on more integrative medicine or pay out of pocket for a naturopath or somebody who might do that deeper dive into their health. So let's say, you know, you have a six to 10 minute long appointment with your doctor. How can you make the most of that time? Sure. So that's a great question. You want to make sure that all the right things are being tested and looked into. So bring a notepad, first of all, write everything down. Because when a doctor feels that you are actually empowered the way that somebody is when they are taking notes, I mean, it changes the conversation dramatically. It makes them realize that you're going to go look things up and that you want more concrete information, not just, you know, simple tips here and there, like, oh, you'll, you'll hear from my office later, et cetera. You want to walk out with any paperwork that they might have on file for you. You want to actually take it with you. So if you had blood results they were looking at, you want a paper copy yourself and you want it emailed to you. Absolutely, you need to carry that with you because when you leave the information about yourself within the care of other people, then you're not empowered. So you want to make sure that you have all the things that you need if you want to take it to a different doctor for another opinion or switch doctors, like you don't need to feel bad, like, oh, can I have my results, you know, and call sheepishly, like you want to have everything. So you've got your notebook and you want to make sure that you understand everything that's being tested and why. So, you know, making sure to ask those questions. Okay, what are you doing? What is that for? Why? And then make sure that you come in with any concerns or questions or symptoms that you might be having, right? So a doctor can't know everything. You have to be able to communicate if you think that there might be an issue like you did with your whatever symptoms that you were experiencing that led you to realize you had this B12 deficiency, you've got to come in and really present those and do what you can beforehand to connect the dots about why those might be happening. So the more information, the more of a full picture that you can paint for this physician or this provider ahead of time, the easier it is for them to go, oh, you know what? Now that you mentioned that, like, let's test this. Maybe it could be that, that kind of thing. So yes, you want to do your pre-work. You want to come in with your notebook. You want to write everything down. And then you want to make sure that if you're being dismissed or you're being shoved out the door, that you ask, you know, you just simply say, I'm going to be doing more. I'm going to be looking into these issues further. Are there any sources that you would recommend or any other kinds of providers or you know, online resources that you would suggest I go digging into, because it also shows you're not going to be pushed off, right? You're not going to just take their like, I've got another thing to do and move on as the end of the story. You're going to keep it going. And so sometimes that might make them realize, okay, she's pretty serious here. I I better take that couple extra minutes to, to figure out what might be going on. But also because they might lead you to some good resources that so you don't have to do just a ton of Googling. And I think all of those things, if you've only got six to 10 minutes, kind of show the person that you came to play, as they say. 
and they step up their game as well to be a better doctor for you, as I hope. But like you said, you know, sometimes you can access conventional doctors who think a little bit more holistically, even if they aren't, you know, out of pocket functional medicine doctors. So I would say, I mean, do what you can to keep searching for ones who do think that way, because stopping at annual checkups or continuous care with somebody that's not really thinking at all holistically about the different systems in your body and how they connect, it's just unacceptable, I think. And we've got to show those kinds of providers that you can't practice that way anymore. And you've got to adapt and you've got to do more for your patients. Definitely. And You know, I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think about, you know, when you go to the doctor and they don't ask you about any of those lifestyle habits? Like, I feel like I'm asked, do you smoke? How often do you exercise? But there's no like real conversation around what my diet looks like, around, you know, what my stress levels are, how are my relationships? Is it appropriate to bring that up to say in the doctor's appointment, like, I would appreciate if you would ask me about some of these factors, because maybe that is playing into certain things. You know, is that going to be an effective way to change the system or is it kind of just futile and find a new doctor? Well, unfortunately, with regard to diet, as you know, the standard medical school student and therefore doctor has less than, I think, 10 hours over four years of medical school education related to nutrition. And even those are electives, meaning that they're optional. So it's very hard to try to have a conversation with somebody who actually doesn't really understand the fundamentals of how food creates disease or creates medicine, right? Or I mean, rather acts as medicine. You know, I have dozens and dozens of friends who are MDs now, both from the work I do with Welby and because I went to Hopkins beforehand and I was the only, you know, girl in my sorority family who wasn't a doctor. And they'll all tell you, like, I don't really know that much about that. That's not my area of expertise. And so the irony is if food is, you know, is 80% of health or diet rather is what I've heard, the general percentages and the people who are acting as your caretaker, your provider don't know much about it. Well, then who does know about it? You know, it's like they should be the ones that do. So I think you've really got to see providers who are a bit better equipped in that way. And so I do think the system has to change. Basically, it's a long winded way of saying you can't ask someone to ask you about lifestyle and diet things if they themselves don't know how to then respond to that information that you're giving them. So I think it's really a system that needs to change from the top down as far as the education. However, I think you can say to a provider, I'm experiencing these different lifestyle things. And I think it does play into the symptoms that I'm telling you about. And that can certainly open up a dialogue and they may respond really well to that and say, you know what, you're probably right. Let me look into that further and follow up with some information or let's talk about it. Maybe they can actually connect the dots between something that they learned. But if you say that and they're still pretty dismissive, it's likely because they don't even know how to handle what you're telling them, you know, about your diet. It's just a possibility that they're not really equipped to connect those dots because they haven't been educated in that way. Definitely. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't want to like walk in and be like, let's talk about my diet. And they're like, I, I what are we going to talk about? Yeah. Here? No, it's, it's almost like I'm a bit compassionate, right? To what they experience. They didn't learn this stuff. So to get angry at them because they don't know, it's not an individual doctor problem. It's a system level doctor problem. And that's, you know, a lot of the reasons that we have the issues that we have today. And Unfortunately, there's a little bit of an arrogance around it, right? It's not like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know that much about that, so I can't help you. It's more like, oh, you know what? That doesn't really matter. Oh, you think your diet plays into your back pain? Like, psh, whatever. No, it's kind of like they're overcoming their own lack of education in that area with a certain arrogance that doesn't matter, but that's really not accurate. It matters a lot. And so when you hear that, it's a tip off to me to get out of there, <laughs> but Overall, I think you're absolutely right. If you can say, I have these symptoms and here are some lifestyle things that might be impacting it, or do you think any lifestyle things could be you know, related to these symptoms I'm experiencing, you're going to be able to have more of a dialogue than you would otherwise. So I think it's absolutely worth a shot. It's just a matter of, like I said, doing a little bit of that pre-work to understand the symptoms you might be having and any lifestyle things you might be doing that could be impacting those. Well, I want to end things on kind of a more optimistic note. So what do you think 
we need to do to change the system? I know that's probably a really loaded question, but from your experience, is that possible? And what are some ways we can enact change so that as a population, we're all just feeling better and not just treating diseases when they pop up and when they happen? Yes, there's so much we can do. I'm glad you asked this question because I do feel very hopeful and optimistic about this, even though I know the problems are so big that we're dealing with. For one, I think things are beginning to change. Just the fact that you and I are talking about this right now as young women, it's awesome. And it just shows like how much things are changing across the system. So I think, as I've said a million times, awareness and education and being informed is your power, right? Education is power. Information is power. So what you can do, I think, going forward to make sure that, you know, you live an amazing, long, disease-free life. And when you do interact with the healthcare system, it's a positive experience, is to have as much information as you can as your own advocate and as a patient and access the help of those people who know a lot about it too when you need it. And then when you do, you know, choose healthcare providers, reward those who are trying to do things differently. You know, the MDs who have gone and gotten a additional training or done a fellowship with the Institute for Functional Medicine or through, you know, Andrew Weil's Center for Integrative Medicine and a couple of these other ones that come up or even osteopaths are fantastic doctors. There's absolutely no reason an osteopath can't be your, you know, GP, your primary care, or your general practitioner. So reward these other kinds of doctors because they're the ones who are thinking differently and going to be part of the future of healthcare. And therefore, the other systems and the other education systems and medical doctors will start to see a shift that they're not first choice anymore and that people are rewarding these other people with their business, with their, you know, provider of choice award and begin to realize that they themselves aren't fully equipped and they need to go do these kinds of additional training and fellowship. And then the trickle up effect, I hope, is that the people who design medical education will see, well, what we're doing for these, you know, all these doctors coming in is not good enough. We need to redesign this and we need to look at these other you know, functional and integrative medicine programs and how they're doing it differently and start to really change the system. And of course, there are very entrenched industries that really don't want us to change, don't want anything to change, right? Because it's very lucrative for them. So I would say be sparing in how much you give them your business, how much you give them your money. So use pharmaceuticals when absolutely necessary, but otherwise, you know, don't give them any more money to work with. Um, And then same with insurance companies. Really understand how to use your insurance, you know, sparingly and demand that you want things to be different when you do interact with your insurance companies. And they kind of have to listen um, and kind of take what you're saying and evaluate whether they want to make changes and cover different things, et cetera. So I think those are all things that you can do to kind of empower yourself within this healthcare system, speaking up, being informed, rewarding those who are doing a better job or doing things differently with your business, with your money. And eventually, I think things are going to really begin to change. And I hope the entire system does change. I'll be working till I'm, you know, I always tell my husband, 90 years old to make sure it happens. And I'm prepared for a long journey to do so because it's a big system and a big ship to steer in a different direction. But I think based on what you're doing and what I'm doing and what a lot of other people are beginning to do, I think it's possible and I think we can do it. Well, I'm very hopeful knowing that you are out there just being a source of inspiration and resources for so many people. I really do think things will shift and change. And I like what you said about like thinking about where you're going to put your dollars and what you're going to invest in. I do think that does have a really great impact. So yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. But thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. If people want to find out more about you and your journey and just follow Wellbe, where can they do that? So Wellbe is actually Get Wellbe on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. That's our URL. And you can search Get Wellbe in your podcast app to find the Wellbe podcast as well. Our podcast is mostly just the audio version of our interviews and our research wrap-ups, et cetera. Um, yeah, so we have a weekly newsletter. That's probably the best way to interact with us. So going to getwellbe.com and signing up for that, I think would be awesome. Or following me on Instagram at getwellbe. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for coming on the show today and for sharing more about your journey and just helping to empower so many patients to be able to, you know, walk into their doctor's office and 
be able to get the care that they need and so badly deserve. So thank you so, so much. You're so welcome. And I agree. Thank you so much for having me today. It's been really fun talking to you about all of these very serious things, but I really feel so optimistic about the future. And um, I think we're all headed in a much different direction. So thank you again for having me. Yeah. Thank you. There you have it. Huge thank you to Adrienne for coming on the show today and for sharing more about her own health journey and just being so vulnerable about what she's experienced and how she has taken that pain and turned it into her power and is helping so many people in their own healthcare journeys. So again, thank you, Adrienne, so, so much. I'm so happy we got connected. So I just looked at my calendar and it looks like when you're hearing this, I will be camping in the Grand Canyon. I believe that's how it's going to play out, but Kurt is always reminding me not to hold too strongly to the itinerary and to be okay with being flexible and changes. I mean, on the last road trip we went on, we totaled our car on the first day. So, you know, there's that. There's always something to learn from these new experiences. But yes, I'm still away pre-recording this just because I'm totally offline and I hope it's fabulous. I hope it's great. But I will give you an update on how everything went in next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. But until then, if stuff comes up for you, if you want to chat about what we discussed here on today's episode, definitely head over to the THM Tribe. It's just facebook.com slash group slash THM Tribe. Tanya, who is my operations manager, is in there just, you know, managing the group boards and making sure everything is running smoothly. But I will be back and answering questions and offering helpful resources to you once I am back the beginning of June. So stay tuned for that. It's just facebook.com slash groups slash THM tribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I would be so grateful if you left a review on iTunes. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your computer. There are so many more of you who listen to this show than leave reviews. And I would just be so, so grateful if you took the time to do that. If you're someone who has been enjoying this as a resource, it really does go a long way. And just thank you for those of you who have. And thank you in advance to those of you who will. Coming up next week on the show, this is one of my favorite episodes I have ever recorded. We have Dr. Adi Jaffe on the show talking about his journey with addiction and eventually went on to become a researcher in addiction and now is offering a resource for recovery for people who might be struggling with their own substance abuse addictions or different habits that are not necessarily leading them down a path that they want to be in. It's a really candid conversation. If you've listened to any of Dr. Jaffe's work, then you'll know what he talks about and how shame is a big, big part of the conversation. So even if you haven't struggled with addiction, there's probably someone in your life who has. On top of that, shame affects us in all different ways. And so it's a really powerful one. I have a feeling you guys are going to enjoy this one. So stay tuned for that next week and also a life update on how the trip went, assuming that, you know, things went well. <laughs> well, let's hope for the best here and I hope you have a wonderful week. I'll talk with you guys soon. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.